All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. Today, it's a pleasure to have on Ben Lamb to discuss his new company, Colossal Biosciences, which aims to bring back extinct species and restore biodiversity. Prior to Colossal, Ben was the founder of Hypergiant Industries, a leading AI company that works with Fortune 500 companies and the U.S. government. He also founded Chaotic Moon Studios, which was acquired by Zynga, and he's a serial entrepreneur, now working to support the restoration of healthy ecosystems. And one of the ways he is working to do that is to bring back to life the woolly mammoth and the dodo. Ben, this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. Can't wait to dive in. But first off, thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. Definitely. So let's start off as early as we can take it. What would probably be the earliest piece of context that I would need to know about you to understand who you are, your journey, and all that you've accomplished? Depending on how far you want to go back, my parents got divorced when I was very young. My mom was a Spanish teacher, spending a lot of time on education, spending a lot of time on understanding other languages and cultures was something that she was really excited about. We always had every kind of pet imaginable from fish to dogs to cats, hedgehogs to you name it, guinea pigs. So so I, I've always been around animals and, and kind of grew up as, a, as an animal lover. And then another part I think that's kind of foundational for me as a child was when when my parents were divorced, my, my dad lived overseas and I actually spent a lot of time traveling overseas, spent a lot of time as a, as a child in Africa and meeting other cultures, seeing wildlife and whatnot. And, and I think that kind of that cultural kind of like worldview coupled with kind of that re-encouragement from my mom, focusing on Spanish and focusing on, on Latin American cultures and whatnot, kind of really helped shape me in terms of like letting me look kind of outside the general middle class that I grew up in as a kid. You mentioned your parents were divorced when you were younger. I know we had on Mike Salguero, and that's a big part of his story, is his dad divorced his mom when he was just four months old, and he felt sort of abandoned and unworthy. What, did that have an effect on you when you were growing up? No, it's, it's a great question. I was very, very lucky. I had an incredible support system. My, my mom and my grandmother kind of weirdly together kind of raised me. My grandmother, my Gigi, I, a lot of times I've, I've talked very publicly about her in, in, in my past because she was just so instrumental in kind of my entire life. I have an, an incredible uncle and, and, and family that kind of like really helped support me. So I think I was very lucky. It's probably from the stats, like divorce is more and more common. But like, I was very lucky that I grew up with like such an incredible support system that I never really had kind of those abandonment issues. Uh, so I was pretty fortunate about it. And now that we get into the professional world a little bit, what was probably the first experience you've had with business or entrepreneurship? And then what compelled you to go into the industry? Well, in high school, I had a lot of jobs, and I think I got fired from all of them. So uh, I was not the best employee. So I went to college, studied finance and accounting, and thought that probably the most likelihood of, of survival for me and not ending up on the streets or back just living at home forever was actually building businesses. And I got really lucky because one of my professors Dr. James Boshinsky was the world's leading performance improvement technologist. And so he had pioneered a lot of cognitive models and instructional design models on how humans use technology to learn. And that was kind of like 
it was kind of the advent of, of e-learning and, and leveraging all these digital tools. I, I don't know if you saw the Apple announcement yesterday, yep. but, but I think education's like e-learning and, 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 and on-job training, all that soon just vastly, I think, continue to change. But back at the time, it was kind of like basic e-learning, basic e-reading online. And, and he built a lot of these cognitive behavioral models on how to do that. And so I was taking finance and accounting classes, uh, met Dr. Moshinsky, took one of his classes, was absolutely mesmerized, showed up with him and said, look, let me leverage some of these latest technologies. At the time, kind of date myself, it was Macromedia Flash, right, which became Adobe Flash. And then eventually Apple and others killed killed Flash. But at the time, like at that, that time of the internet, everything was moving, right? And so how we can apply that and build a, a deeper connection between the content, you know, like if you're, if you're doing content in e-learning around like industrial wastewater management, for like a large biotech like Genentech, which was my first job, being able to take pictures of like Marin County and like tie it back to the choices that you make with wastewater disposal could affect the environment, right? And so, so how how you could use kind of all of these sensory type experiences like sound and movement and animation and, and interaction design to really kind of like reinforce that learning was something that was like really passionate to me. So like even though it wasn't my major, I like immediately was like. Uh, in love with kind of like how we can apply technologies to make it, it better for people to learn in new careers out of college. So I think in my junior year of college, I started a business with him. And that was like my first true foray into entrepreneurship and, and, and building companies. When I was thinking back a little bit, I know in the early days of the internet, Apple was first trying to get into education with Apple Books, and they yeah. were bringing on digital textbooks. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is brilliant. You can have textbooks digitally, but it didn't really catch on that much. And I think that's one of the things we even see today is it's very hard to just layer on new technologies into old business models. And I think we're seeing a major shift with in now what we have with AI and Web3 and stuff like that is that you just can't layer, at least not often, new technologies onto old business models. You've got to yeah. have these like crazy tectonic shifts, right? It takes like Apple and like, I mean, we saw that in mobile, right? So you mentioned Chaotic Moon, which ultimately got acquired by Accenture. They actually, we were very fortunate to work very closely with Apple. We worked very closely with Google. And at one point, we had like a 98% chance that if you had an iPhone or an Android device, that we had an app on your home screen, right? Because we did all the major apps like Pizza Hut and Disney and, and Starbucks and everyone in between. But what was interesting, though, is that it really took people who were trying to do like mobile payments, people were trying to do mobile games, people were trying to do that for years with Java and everything else before that. But it really took Apple and Google that said, no, this needs to be an interest industry. This is important. And there were a lot of pioneers that got arrows in the back on the path to Apple and Google making that. So I, I feel like a lot of times when you have these like transitional moments of like old business models and new technologies, it really takes a lot of times these big behemoths to kind of like force its will into the world. Definitely. Now that we transition a little bit onto Colossal Biosciences, what is the company and what problem does it aim to solve? Yeah, so to our knowledge, we're the world's first de-extinction company. A lot of people are starting to talk about decarbonization of the atmosphere. People are starting to talk more and more about even methane suppression, which is fantastic. But not enough people are starting are, are talking yet about loss of biodiversity. And unfortunately, we're on this trajectory that we're going to lose up to 50% 
of all biodiversity between now and 2050 if we don't do anything. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a major issue. There's ecosystem collapse. There's this like cascading down, downgrading effect that occurs from from losing these keystone species. So I, I met Dr. George Church, who is arguably the father of synthetic biology, probably the smartest person I've ever met, just absolutely incredible. And he pioneered a lot of these technologies around reading and writing genomes. One is one of the first to kind of advance multiplex editing, being to edit multiple parts of the genome at the same time, was the first to publish with CRISPR. And so I met George and I actually reached out to him to talk to him about building a software company around synthetic biology and making using AI to improve it, which I, I finally got to build with Form Bio kind of later on. And he told me about his vision to use these technologies to build this de-extinction toolkit to use these big iconic species like the woolly mammoth and others to bring them back, bring attention to this problem, and then leverage those tools and technologies both for human health care and for conservation. And so fundamentally, Colossal is focused on de-extincting of a, of a couple core keystone species and rewilding them back into the environment in collaborations with governments and you know, local people and indigenous people groups and whatnot. But then we're also building technologies that have an application to human healthcare, which we're monetizing and hopefully advancing human health, building tools that make it easier to, to fight diseases. But we're also building tools that have applications to conservation. And all of those tools we're giving to the world for free because we, we, we think that conservation is massively underfunded and we want to give new tools and technologies to them to have in their tool belt to save species. So there's the human healthcare component, and then on the fact of bringing back extinct species, what impact per se does that actually have on the world? Yeah, well, so it's, I, I think it, it has different impact. I think the way you ask the question is great because a lot of people really want to focus on the impact to a species or impact to the ecosystem, which I'll talk about. But it also has a worldwide impact, right? Just like going to the moon. We have all the technologies to get to the moon. We have all the technologies now to bring back extinct species. You've got to bring together the right team and technologies in order to do it and give them the right focus and funding and runway to achieve it. And so, so fundamentally, I think that that creates a halo effect for science, right? I think that companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and others have really inspired and kind of built on the backs of NASA and really inspired, inspired more next generation kids and children to grow up and want to be a scientist or want to go into engineering. And, and I think that hopefully we can have that halo effect around conservation and around biotechnologies, right? And so we would love to, to have a similar, maybe not quite to the grandiose vision of like a SpaceX or a Blue Origin, but we'd love to have kind of a halo effect to bring people into these, these types of things. But then separately, what we've seen is that anytime an ecosystem loses its keystone animal, whether that's a predator or a large herbivore, this, this system starts to degrade and, and the entire ecosystem becomes lost. And so there's been lots of scientific models that have shown in, in peer-reviewed papers that reintroducing keystone carnivores like the thylacine back in Australia can actually help preserve and, and restore the different kind of mezzanine layers of, of the ecosystem. In the reintroduction of mammoths or other cold-tolerant Pleistocene megafauna back into the Arctic can actually help to lower ground temperatures and help kind of bring back that mammoth Arctic steppe, which was an Arctic grassland, which is way more efficient at carbon sequestration than what currently exists. And so we're, these different projects have different ecosystem and ecological impacts, but I think they also have a shared vision that they're, they inspire the, the next generation. Like I come from software, so I feel like a little bit of a hypocrite saying this, but 
I, I feel like we have a lot of software and we'll continue to build software. I feel like sometimes software gets into a world where it's like, okay, now it's a web three version. Now it's an AI version, right? It's like, I don't know if we need more of the same. I, I got really lucky that George took me on this journey to, to kind of go do this big moonshot. And I hope that it inspires other people to tackle similar type problems or at least pursue them, right? And, and see what we learn on that path. Yeah, those are some great points. I think there's one question I think I need to get out of the way before somebody inevitably asks it. Why can't you bring back to life dinosaurs? <laughs> so I just did a podcast about the 30 year anniversary of the Jurassic Park, which makes me feel really old, right? Like I'm 41, but they're really <laughs> old. And they're like, it's the 30 year anniversary of Jurassic Park. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, like I was like, I'm shocked by that. So, so there isn't dino DNA, right? And so like in the case of the mammoth, it's mammoths only went fully extinct about 36, 3,300, 3,600 years ago. But what's interesting is that we actually have not only preserved DNA from the permafrost, we actually still, even with that short period of time, we actually are using 54 mammoth genomes to assemble a reference genome that we're using on, on our pursuits to, to, to engineer kind of our 2.0 mammoths, right? And so you can't do that with fossils because they're rocks, right? They're not bone. So you can't extract any DNA, right? And so so there's no dino DNA. Now what Kenneth Lacavara, who's arguably one of the top uh, paleontologists in the world, he's one of our scientific advisors, a dear friend. He's the one that discovered dreadnoughts. If you don't know what dreadnoughts is, you got to look it up. It's amazing. It's the biggest dinosaur that ever has been discovered. And, and he's actually had a process where they've taken and broken apart dinosaur fossils, demineralized them, and actually found amino acids. And he's been working on these really cool ways to say, if you find this bone in this certain part of the world, you can do this process. And then you can say, oh, it's a triceratops. But why would a triceratops be in this part of the world? So he thinks it can be really helpful with ancestral reconstructions and whatnot. But we, we don't have enough DNA. So there, there probably are amino acids that comes from this demineralization process. But there's not short, long fragments, let alone short fragments of DNA, right? And, and you really need to get to a certain coverage before you can do the genome analysis to understand it and then start engineering it. I do believe while you will not be able to de-extinct a dinosaur, I do think at some point we as humanity, probably not colossal, but we as humanity will have the ability to, to engineer life on a large scale. And if people think they want dinosaurs, I don't know what ecosystem restoration benefits they have, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they would. But but I do think that that we as humanity will have the technologies eventually to, to kind of like engineer that level of, of, of life, but it will be just massive. It'll be a massive engineering project, not really the extinction project. What do you think's missing in the technology that we have today that would enable us to engineer those types of life? Um, a couple things. So one whole genome, we have whole genome sequencing, but we don't have full DNA synthesis where you can print. We are using a combination of single edits. We're using a combination of like uh, multiplex editing, we're doing edits all over the genome, but then separately, we're also engineering these fragments of DNA and doing full, and we have a novel way of, of doing of doing a large cargo, cargo delivery of DNA. So we're like putting in these big fragments, right? If you can synthesize, and we're synthesizing those, right? And so if you can synthesize the entire genome, our life would be so much easier at, at Colossal, right? We just, we don't have that level of, of technology yet as humanity, but we will. I do think that multiplex editing, we are pushing the bounds of multiplex editing. And, and, and what that means is instead of just changing out a, a letter or, or knocking out a fragment of DNA, 
It's doing a bunch of those edits at the same time. Because when you do one edit, sometimes you, depending on the mammalian cell or, or non-mammalian cell, you get different levels of cell toxicity. You've got to wait till it, it essentially repairs. You got to be in, in divides. You have to be very, very thoughtful about cell mortality, right? And so, so fundamentally, you're limited based that 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 has a function of time. The better we get at, at colossal and at society at multiplex editing, where you're editing all over the genome at the same time with kind of one edit that lowers your amount of editing time that also lowers cell toxicity. Right. And so, so for us, I think that uh, to, to get to that level of, of work, I think there's more computational needs that are starting to happen. I think that there's more protein and genome engineering work that's starting in synthesis that's starting to happen. And then there's multiplex editing. We hope that like if we do a 10th animal one day, right, we hope that's a lot easier than the first one, right? And, and we can only do that through kind of achieving those efficiencies. But I do think that humanity will get there. What we do with it's a whole nother can of worms. Right. You mentioned that 50% biodiversity loss number earlier. There's some that might argue, hey, you don't want to interfere with the current system of the biodiversity loss, et cetera, and nature's natural path. How do you balance between helping solve that problem and completely interfering with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we interfere it that, like the playing God argument, we, we do that every day, right? Like, like the thylacine is a great example because we as humanity completely eradicated the thylacine. It didn't exist. I'm sorry, it, it completely existed in its natural habitat. It was the keystone predator in that environment. And then the Australian government put a bounty on it to eradicate it, to kill it, to hunt it. God, they paid people to kill them, right? And so we did that, right? We hunted and introduced invasive species into Mauritius and the neighboring islands and, and eradicated the dodo. We've done these things. We're trying to figure out how we can undo those things and then figuring out where we can start to apply thoughtful, disruptive conservation models is, is really key. There was a lot of talk in, in a lot of arguments around the reintroduction of wolves back in Yellowstone. So they were called like in the, in the 1920s. In 1995, they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone. And what was amazing about that is like there was all this like debate on whether we should do it. And, and ecologists and all these groups came together and said, look, we're going to do it. It's been one of the most successful rewilding campaigns of all time, right? If you fast forward to now and seeing kind of like how to reshape the park. So, so we know rewilding works. We understand what the intended consequences of some of these species are, right? And we, we definitely are, can see and measure what the impact of their absence is, right, on that ecosystem. So I, I think that any rewilding project just needs to be very thoughtfully handled. It also needs to be handled in a way that it's, it's highly inclusive, right? Like you need to work with indigenous people groups. You need to work with the large private landowners. You need to work with the governments. So it, it's a very collaborative process. And so I was able to reintroduce Ned, which was the 21st Tasmanian devil, which isn't extinct, but endangered, back into the mainland of Australia. But that was the 21st one, right? So it's like, even though we have a Tasmanian devil, it's, like they, it's not like they're going out and, and releasing 40,000 overnight, right? So, so it, it's a very gated and measured process that you go through with rewilding. But I, I think that we have to do something and I think it's better to like do something that be passive because if we're just passive, we know that we're going to lose these species and we know that that's not based on natural course, a small percentage of it is, but most of it's done due to man-inflicted impact. 
And to be able to do what you do today, you've obviously had to raise quite a bit of money. In fact, $225 million in funding. What was the biggest challenge in trying to convince investors to part with their money? And this, of all things, is a company that they should fund. Well, I think that we, we try to be, we were very targeted and very kind of thoughtful about who to go to. We wanted to go to long-term technology investors that understood various different business models, that understood how important this is from a conservation perspective. So going to people like Thomas Toll, going to people like Jim Breyer, going to people like Tim Draper, we were very selective in who we went to and and building up that right matrix. I mean, we told some investors no, that they just weren't a good fit. We also got told no a lot, right? And I think that's any startup gets told no a lot, especially in like this climate, but in a lot of climates. But I think that we were very, very thoughtful about it. And we showed that like, if we had a breakthrough in just one of these different areas, whether it's software or hardware, the results could be billions of dollars off of one innovation outside of carbon credits, ecotourism, biodiversity credits, outside of everything around the animals themselves, just these subset of the technologies, because bringing back an extinct species and in, in, in engineer or engineering proxy for one is effectively a systems problem. So you, you actually have to build a lot of infrastructure. You have to hire a lot of really smart women and men in order to achieve it. And then you've, but, but then the kind of like innovations and some inventions that come from that systems point of view, I think drives a lot of meaningful value that can be applied to other industries. Yeah. And Draper is a good one. I know when I interviewed him for the podcast, I asked him like, hey, what's your strategy in finding these companies? He said, we just find the craziest companies that wouldn't normally fit in other people's normal thought of a good company to invest in. And I just invest in the crazy ones. And I think that's pretty cool to see. And met Tim once before. So he's one of the investors that was new. And and I got more to oh, Tim's going to come in. He's going to give you 15 minutes and y'all are the board. I talked my first call with Tim was 90 minutes and it was great and it was thoughtful and, and he was just amazing. And he gave me really good advice. And he's like, and on the, on the call, he's like, we're in. And, and, and he's like, we're, we're a hundred percent. And it was, it was great. And, and so we, we've been very fortunate. I, I do think that and I, I built a lot of companies or built a handful of companies over the years and, and a lot of different investors. And I think that, with Colossal, we've been very blessed that we've had these incredible investors that are very engaged. And so we'll, we'll have folks like, you know, Thomas Toll or, or Bob Nelson, and Bob's like arguably the number one biotech investor of all time, texting us, hey, want you to meet this person or, hey, can I help you with this, right? And, and like, I, I've, been, I've had great investors in the past, and I've just never had that level of active engagement. So I think we did the right thing with being thoughtful about who we should bring to the table because once people are in this deal, they get pretty excited. Yeah, you mentioned active engagement. It's something we've clearly seen a big shift in the VC industry where investors are more towards driving value towards founders. Sitting on the founder end of the table, how do you see investors providing engagement and advice versus them trying to control your company operations and et cetera? How do you know or find a balance between the two? Yeah, I, I think that balance is hard, right? For a long time, I've had a lot of investors that I think had great intentions of making promises and maybe not delivering because of scale and just portfolio theory that couldn't help all of them. I think I do think that Colossal may be a little bit different just because it's so unique. And I think that if you're in it, you're really in it. Like you eat, sleep, breathe, and think Colossal, right? And so 
I think we're very, very fortunate because we have kind of that, 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 that uniqueness, right? But, but I think that for me, it starts with just like managing and setting those expectations around, look, these are like board topics. These are corporate governance topics. These are things that we're going to do to operate the business, but then ongoing strategy. So, so I don't limit myself to our board of directors, our biggest investors, as well as our most engaged investors. I almost treat them like an extension of the board, right? And so like one of our new, I'll give you two other examples other than Thomas. One of our new large investors is a guy named Eric Anderson. Eric was the founder of Topgolf. He started a lot of, he's had a biotech fund. He's done a lot of other businesses, right? And, and when I met him, he's like, Colossal could be a country defining company where countries could leverage Colossal and technologies to, to really tell a story around eco, saving the ecosystem and preserving life. And then they can also have massive impact from those choices. And so, so my first meeting with Eric, Eric was like, look, I'm all in. And then he's really helped me think about what are the right trade-offs and what is the right option value that is, that is created by the company. And then what do we say no to? Because we get, we have a lot, I mean, we have every major brand coming to us. We have a lot of really great people are excited about Colossal, which is great. But how do we be thoughtful about that? How do we be mindful of that? And like Eric and Thomas both, both have done that. And then one of our early investors also is a, is a group called Animal Capital. Ironically, they don't focus on investing in animals. They focus on a lot of consumers out there. For <laughs> and they were like, look, we have to get celebrities to be a part of this on some level too, because we want to reach the audiences. So it's funny that some of the work that we're doing that may not be mainstream, like EEHV, which is a herpes virus, kills 25% of elephants every single year. We've brought more attention to this like terrible disease that, that we as humanity have the technologies to eradicate, but no one's been focused on it except a very small group of underfunded conservationists and researchers. But for the most part, we could eradicate this. And we brought attention to that because we've had all these incredible partners that have helped us like spread the word on this, on this thing. And then that's, that's given us support that we needed from a funding perspective to go eradicate this disease, which is something that we're not charging for. We're just giving to the world as, as part of our efforts. And so I think that now, maybe more than ever, well, I don't know if it's a shift in the VC climate or it's, you know, or it's but I mean, kind of like a sample size of one with Colossal, but I just, I've just seen this like real engagement of not, not investors that are draconian that want to like control things, but really want to help and support, right? And they're like, hey, how can I help? Or would meeting this person be interesting or helpful? And and I've just been really, really lucky. And, and it sounds like from what you're saying, more and more companies are experiencing that, which is awesome. And when we take a look at the next few years for Colossal Biosciences, what are some of the milestones or goals that you have set for the company? And when do you think, I'm sure the biggest question you get asked that you can first see the first animal coming to life? So a couple questions there. So one, I think that big milestones is the biggest, hairiest milestones are you know, like birthing mammoths, right? And so right. I think that's our, our, our biggest milestone. And, and we feel good about 2028. Some people think that's crazy from a timeline perspective. But as I mentioned earlier, we look at this as a system. So we built all these infrastructure to support it. So we feel confident in 2028 of having our first calves, which is exciting. I will say though, on that path, we have a couple of really big conservation stories that are going to be coming out this year that we're really proud of and apply, starting to apply the technologies that we are developing to conservation. 
So I think we'll see some of those milestones out there. I think that you may see another spin out of Colossal in the not too distant future. The team is just innovating at an insane speed. So there may be more startups coming out of Colossal, which are interesting. And then your question on when we will see the birth of the first animal, what I'll tell you is the mammoth most likely won't be first just because there's a 22 month gestation. We've had some other advancements that are moving quicker than we originally anticipated, which is exciting. So, so I think that it could happen sooner than you think. So I, I think in the next few years, we could see something back on the planet that hasn't been here in quite some time, which would be exciting. Definitely. Can't wait to see what happens there. And I'm sure bringing animals and stuff back to life, there could be some regulatory and ethical issues that you have to deal with. How are you dealing with those issues and what are those issues? The first thing that's an absolute non-starter is you have to have an incredible team that's focused on animal welfare, right? And so the science is the science, but you got to focus on animal welfare. And we are very fortunate that our chief animal officer and our conservation team comes from that world. So we have a whole team that focuses on that, right? To ensure not just that the science is successful, but that the animals thrive in that process. So that's the first. The other thing is you really have to take a transparent and inclusive perspective to this, right? Not everyone loves what we're doing. A lot of people do, right? We, we, we've garnered over 50 billion media impressions, which is crazy, 98% positive or neutral feedback. And, and I think that's because we have some of the top scientists in the world We've partnered with all the major conservation groups out there, right? And we continue to, to collaborate with more. And we try to be very transparent and, and collaborative. I feel like when you're doing anything this bold, it's, it's our responsibility, not the public's responsibility, to, to be transparent and to educate. It's certainly not our job to persuade anybody, right? If you feel the way you feel, it's not our job to tell you you're right or you're wrong. It's our job to educate you. And I think that... We've done, I think, as good a job as we can to to date, educating the public. And that's actually turned people that were negative against us at the beginning on on our side. And and, and that's been awesome, right? And Because I think you can learn a lot more through that educational process and listening to your critics than you can just dismissing them and focusing on the people that love you, right? The, The people that love what you're doing, those people are easy, right? Like people that are like, I saw Jurassic Park for the 40th time, and this is a Jurassic Park, but it's similar and I love it. Th- those people are easy. Those people are already bought in, right? It- it's-, it's-, it's the other folks that, that we need to really spend time and-, and educate on. And so we have a team of conservationists. We have a team of bioethicists. And so we spend a lot of time on the ethics of, of this and the conservation side of this. And-, and I think that's equally important to the kind of like headline grabbing de-extinction side. Yeah. And like you mentioned, anytime you go after a goal that's just so vast or so large, there's always going to be the doubters. What are some of the reasons why people don't love what you're doing? Well, I think a lot of it goes back down to education, right? We, we, we continually add to our website like every day. I feel like we add like 40 more. Like we, we constantly are like, oh, that's a good question. We don't have an answer for that. Or that's a good question. We have an answer for it, but we haven't, edu- we haven't educated, done a great job of communicating it. So, so we're constantly trying to learn it with that feedback. One critical feedback that we get is why not just save existing species? And our argument to that is, we're not arguing, but our, our points to that are, we are focusing on, on critically endangered species and we are advancing technologies that we're giving to conservationists as new tools and approvals. Because the current model of conservation of, let's put, let's put our arms around this big group area of land 
let's cross our fingers that no act of God happens. And let's hope that we can keep poachers out and maybe stuff will breed internationally. And that's what we just don't see that. It's just not realistic, right? We are affecting the planet at a much higher rate. So, so, so one feedback that we get that's negative is like, why not just go focus on, on conservation? I think that if you're listening to this, you're sitting at home and you want to, we're a private company, you can't buy our stocks. So give money to conservation. We are all about supporting existing conservation while Colossal is advancing tools and technologies that we think will help conservation at a, at a more meaningful pace than what they currently have. And they just don't have enough money to go focus on that. I think the biggest feedback that we get is that kind of like, you know, echo chamber of like, why wouldn't this money be going to conservation? And we argue that it is. And we argue that it's, it's fundamental to advancing these technologies that, that will help conservation. And this is new money to conservation. So we didn't go to like, I don't, I don't know all the major philanthropy groups. We didn't go to all the philanthropy groups and say, oh, you shouldn't give money to the Northern White Rhino Project. You should give money to Colossal, right? Like that, that wasn't like, we went to technology investors. I like to think that there's one less crappy software company in the world because we exist, right? And, and so, and so that, that's how we think about it. But that is probably the biggest negative feedback that, that we get. And before we start to wrap it up here, a couple questions I did want to ask. First off, before you die, what is one thing that you want to have, have accomplished or done? Bes- besides bringing back and rewilding mammoths? Just anything, happen? anything. Wait, yeah, that so, can so, count. So that's one, right? So, so be successful delivering on our promise to bring back the mammoth, the thylacine, and the dodo and reintroduce them back into the wild is is one and i'll give you a segment that we're not working on obviously is i'd love to see the success of of spacex and putting cubans on mars like i I think that not just going there but becoming an interplanetary species is is pretty cool and i think that we live in an awesome time that i think you and i will both get to see both and i think that we're really fortunate in that you mentioned spacex a couple of times do you think we'll have some time down the line where we can actually create our own ecosystem and species on other planets like Mars, et cetera, besides just humans. I do. I do. I think that we will be able to like, I think that synthetic biology is the most important sector for the future of our civilization. I think that we will be able to terraform planets. I think that we will be able to engineer life for sustained space travel. I think that we will be able to engineer life in a way that we can truly not just survive on these other bodies, but also thrive on them. I, I, I do. I don't know what event horizon that occurs, but I believe it will occur. And I think synthetic biology is key to that, right? Like understanding our biology, because engineering only takes us so far, right? We, we, we have to start thinking also about biological engineering. And as we wrap it up here, what is probably the legacy that you want to leave? What's the legacy you want to have? I think it would be great to to not just bring back extinct species, but I think that getting to the overall system that that in this kind of de-extinction toolkit that we're hoping emerges from Colossal that empowers any conservation group, any nonprofit or any government that says, hey, we want to preserve this life and we also want to make more of it. I, I think that is critical. Like we work on the Northern White Rhino Project with Dr. Thomas Hildebrandt and they're functionally extinct. There's two left. They're both female. They're going to be using Southern whites for surrogacy and whatnot. But the best thing to do is be able to take those tissue samples 
engineer in genetic diversity artificially, and then grow them ex utero in artificial wombs, and then work with great partners that are conservationists to rewild them back into the wild, right? And the way to save the northern white rhino is not just to protect two of them, but make a hundred of them that are genetically diverse and interbreedable, and then inter- and then rewild them. And I, and I think that if we are successful in that, not just in our de-extinction efforts, but that full de-extinction toolkit, that'd be a, that'd be a cool legacy to maybe be known for if, we, if we're successful. Yeah, definitely. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. Really exciting to see what you're working on over at Colossal. Can't wait to see where it goes. I'll be glad that I'll be still be alive to see what happens with it. I'm sure we'll see some pretty interesting stuff. And uh, for those in the audience interested in learning more about Colossal, I'll have Ben's Twitter and the Colossal Biosciences webpage listed in the episode description down below. Well, that wraps it up. And thanks, Ben, for taking the time to join. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.